0: The podcast presented by Just TV Productions. Hi there, I'm your host, Fondue, and I'm just Are you ready for a second season of Just Cheesy the Podcast? Of course. Do you want to learn a little bit about cheese history? I do. Do you want to find out about the latest cheese holidays? Sure. Do you want to hear about some cheese news? How about a joke? Why is cheddar the most dangerous of all the cheeses? Why? Because it's very sharp. (laughs) Get it sharp. Join us for Just Cheesy the Podcast. Season 2. Utmost Island, Chapter 13. When the first daylight came, Munin, who had been flying all night, saw the ship far below him and realized at once that everything was not as it should be. Ajir had taken advantage of Odin's many troubles, and being unwatched had set a trap far ahead at Greenland itself. Part of the trap was a storm and part of it was worse, and the people on the ship had no way of knowing about it or guarding against it. For Greenland's storms are sudden and freezing, unlike those of Iceland, whose name it should have had. And Greenland's people, especially if you do not know they exist, can strike as suddenly and savagely as their storms. These Greenlanders had, it is true, been spoken of by Thorgis Drangar's kinfolk, but in so slighting a way and with so few words that they received less notice than Greenland's weather. Those who told the story were ashamed of what had happened and so passed over that part of it briefly and with evident contempt, pausing only long enough to give the Greenlanders one of the three names they went by. They called them skraelings, which, in the Norse tongue, signified dwarfish men. It was not a true description, though the concept of shortness has clung to them. But it came from their flat, furry bonnets and their wide, fur clothing, which gave them a squat look. The second of the names by which they were known was given them by a tribe of their enemies, whom they had driven from Greenland. By them, they were called the Eskimos, which meant eaters of raw flesh, and may have been a figure of speech suggesting their fierceness when aroused. Their third name, by which they preferred to be called, was Inuits. This was a word in their own language, which simply meant people. If they'd been thought of as that, instead of Skralings, or Eskimos, or not at all, the seafarers would have avoided a great misfortune. The Skralings differed from the Icelanders and from everyone else in that they had no past and no songs. They might have had songs if they'd had a past to sing about, but the nature of their land prevented their remembering their past, which was very much like not having one. Their world was made entirely and solely of snow and rocks. If they built a house of snow, it would someday melt. If they built it of rocks, it would someday be hidden under snow. So nothing that they built could ever remind one generation that another had lived before it. The rocks were dead, unyielding and black. The snow was still, unending, and white. There was no color beyond that, anywhere or ever. But the Skraylings did not hunger for color because they'd never known it. They did not even know such words as never or ever, because those imply that there have been many moments and will be many more, some of them different from the present. To the Skrillings, all moments were so exactly alike that they all seemed to be the same, and it was called now. Their single problem was how to live through it. With no past, there was no original creation to wonder about and therefore no gods to have done the creating. But they did try to account for why the world was so difficult and dreadful. So they had a devil. His name was Tarnasuk, and the tribe paid him to be allowed to live. The way he exacted his bribe was to crack the ice suddenly under someone's feet, drag him down, and, of course, eat him. When that happened, no attempt must be made to save the victim. Instead, everyone said in unison, Tarnasuk is taking his pay. The dead man was neither mourned nor remembered. Since there was no past, he simply never had been. Of course, no story of theirs could begin with once upon a time. It had to be about the deadly present and teach some trick for keeping alive stories were a necessity and were told anywhere at any time as for example when sitting in an igloo fishing through a hole in the ice the storyteller would suddenly with neither warning nor skillful introduction grasp his listener by the arm and holding his attention thus say with great intensity you are in a canoe it overturns your spear floats out of reach A hungry bear is sitting on an ice floe. He sees that you are helpless. He swims towards you. Then there comes a pause, followed by the point of the story. What will you do? The listener finishes the story by answering with a quick improvisation. Thus sharpening his wits against real accidents and real bears. Or the story might be like this. You are following a wounded caribou. You have no other food. You must capture him or starve. But it is snowing heavily. Every mark is being covered. If you do not start for home, you will not find your way back, and you will freeze to death. Then the pause and the point. What will you do? In various parts of the world, four separate accounts had been given of trips to Greenland. The people on the ship were in great peril, through knowing only three. First there was the one told by Ulf the Crow, who said he saw the place as he scudded past it in a storm, and that was true. Then there was the Sea King's father, Red Eric, who told how desolate it was and how he had tricked his enemies into going there, and that was true too. And then there was a tale told by those enemies... Thorgus Dragnar's kinfolk, who said it was an icy hell where no man could live. But that was only partly true. By their own account, Skrælings lived there, despite the pretense that Skrælings were not really men and could well be forgotten. But for anyone to be safe who was going to Greenland, it was necessary to know the story that was told by the Skrælings themselves. It was the only story they had which was concerned with the past although to be sure they told it with their strange present tense vividness and always thought they were inventing it it had happened 32 years before but was so full of shock and horror to them that it could never be forgotten and was forever being retold it was their version of how thorgist kinfolk has visited greenland you are standing on the shore they would begin abruptly, as usual. The whole tribe is there. You are all looking at a strange kind of canoe which is coming toward land. It is very large and has many oars and a square skin tied to a pole. And on its front end is the head of a huge animal. It rides onto the beach. Tall men with yellow hair jump out and pull the canoe safely from the waves. We do not know who they are, but... They are on our shore and they are our guests. We help them pull the canoe up to the beach. We lead the men to our huts. We warm them. We feed them. We lend them our wives. In the morning, they all stand together away from us, talking by themselves. They divide into two groups. One takes all the women and drives them toward the big canoe. The others attack us with big knives They kill several of us. The rest of us run. The women get away and run with us. We run where we know the ice is thin. The yellow-haired men are bigger and heavier than we are. The ice breaks. Tarnasuk takes three of them. The others stop running after us. They try to pull the three away from Tarnasuk. We get our spears. We will not let Tarnasuk be cheated. We fight. Tarnasuk makes us strong and brave. The strangers run back to their big canoe. We let them go. They sail around the point of the land. They try to live in another place. We hunt them. We kill many. Very few are left. They are sick and gloomy. They get into the big canoe and go back into the sea. Then the pause in the story, and the point. Again you are standing on the shore. You see a big canoe coming out of the sea. It has a square skin tied to a pole, and many oars, and an animal's head on the front. Think now, and answer quickly. What will you do? And while the answer was being thought out, another square-sailed ship with a dragon head prow, the one that was trying to save Thor from Olaf, came nearer to Greenland. To those on board, unaware of anything but fair weather, this was the third day of a perfect three-day journey. Nightfall, or morning at latest, would see them safely ashore, dividing the land that was to be their new farms. There had been some question in the bonders' minds whether the crew should have as much land as themselves. But since the crew heavily outnumbered them, it seemed wiser to be fair, so they announced that the distribution would be the same for all. This news was received with enthusiasm. It was said on all sides that this was the right way to begin building their new world, but a few of the bonders muttered that they were showing disrespect for the old ways they had set out to preserve. Turker was a source of embarrassment, being the only thrall aboard. They could not really treat him like themselves unless they were prepared to abandon much of their thinking and all of their social structure. On the other hand, he'd performed his tasks as well as any. Launching, rowing, and being cheerful. For a moment, the daring thought crossed a few minds that perhaps there should be no slaves in their new home. But the other changes which that suggested, such as who would do the hardest, basest work, were so drastic that they dismissed the idea, shocked, and were readier to hold to the old and tried. They consoled Turker, and themselves, by telling him they would bear his case in mind and find a way of dealing with it justly some other time. The nearer they drew to Greenland, the more they felt the need of preparing for practical difficulties. Among these was one that was so pressing that they called a thing on deck to discuss it. This was how they could increase the supply of women. There were only five aboard, except for a couple of grandmothers who, when looked at practically, did not really count as women. Of the five, two were wives, The other three were daughters, two of whom were fifteen years old, and therefore marriageable, while the third was twelve and developing rapidly, or as these free farmers expressed it, she would soon be ripe. Clearly, five were far from enough, for there were thirty-seven men aboard. A raid for women would be necessary very soon, but where, when, and how? They had best make an immediate decision because it might alter their course. The men tried to discuss it objectively and frankly, as if no women were present, while the women tried to keep out of the argument and for a while succeeded. The men began by calling it a problem in navigation. The trouble was, there is no land of any kind between Iceland and Greenland, so they must either turn back and raid the Orkneys after all, or perhaps the Shetlands or Faroes, or else they must go on to Greenland, leave the women and children there with a few men to guard them, and then sail back a much greater distance to do their raiding. The second plan was adopted because one of the wives could not be silent any longer and gave a practical reason which was decisive. She said that the women would need time ashore to set up housekeeping, The other women said this was true. They had another reason, which they did not give and perhaps were not aware of. It was pleasant to be the only women on the expedition and they wanted that to last as long as possible. They did not dare oppose the raid altogether. The men would not have tolerated that and would have given a lofty reason of their own, the duty of peopling the new homeland. Having decided when they would raid, The question remained, where? The first suggestion was a bold one. This was that they raid Norway. They could make a sudden attack, which would succeed because no one could possibly expect it, and carry off the wives and daughters of those very bonders who had become Christian earls. What a gesture of defiance to Olaf that would be. They shouted to one another their various guesses as to how many ships he would send after them, and still not find them. A hundred. No, two hundred. No, all he had, and he'd build more. Olaf's probable fury was delightful. But they had to decide against that plan. They did not say the odds against them were too great, and their destruction too certain. They would never entertain such a cowardly reason, especially with women present. They said Norway was too far away. The second of the two wives then offered a suggestion that was dear to her own heart. Her idea was that they raid Ireland. She herself was Irish and had been captured in a raid when she was fourteen. She was extremely beautiful at that time, which was the reason for her being taken, as well as why she was able to raise herself from the position of concubine to that of wife. Now, she had a longing to see some of her relatives and former friends and thought this was a good way to do it. She offered to guide the men through the bog that led to her native village and show them where to hide until nightfall. She described with, pathetic eagerness, the excellent quality of the Irish girls, dwelling on their beauty, habitual virginity, and fidelity when once they were mastered. She only failed to gain her end because other places were nearer, and because her husband thought it might be a scheme to drown them all in a bog. They came back at last to their first scheme, to raid the Orkneys. That would be as satisfying a defiance of Olaf as raiding Norway, because they told all Iceland of their intention. He would never believe they would keep their word. Keeping one's word meant nothing to Olaf, now that he had forsaken Odin. Oh, his amazement when the news reached him. But by the time he follows us there, we'll be away, and he won't know where. Then hooray, hooray, for they now had a plan. To Greenland first, and the Orkneys next, and Christian Olaf will be perplexed. There was not a dissenting voice, except that the Sea King said he meant to live without women from then on, but he would help the other men to get some for themselves. The two wives and three daughters thought privately that this mood would pass, and presently they would see what they could do about it. But one or two of the men said he should not be allowed to make an exception of himself. If he alone were wifeless and one day began to feel a love lust, as they were sure he would, he might hunger for someone else's wife and there would be trouble. They were about to vote that he must get a woman for himself whether he wanted one or not, when land was sighted in the distance and everything else was forgotten. It was immeasurably far off, scarcely distinguishable from the rest of the horizon line, visible only to eyes sharpened like theirs by peering across great distances. Even if the wind held up, they would be most of the day reaching it. But it was Greenland beyond any doubt. They knew the stars, and they knew the course taken on the three earlier voyages. They knew everything that was to be known about it at the time, except the storm which Ajir was brewing there. Only the Skraelings knew about that, because they and their kayaks were trying to be safe from it there, in a haven where the ship with the square sail and the dragonhead prow would also seek shelter. The Icelanders might perhaps have been prepared for a jeer's treachery, but never for a fight with Skralings. How could a people who had no past be imagined by people who had little else? Thanks for listening, friends. I'd like to recommend you also give a listen to the Lunatics Radio Hour. I know some of you love horror movies, paranormal cases, folklore and mythology, and themed fiction like today's chapter of historical fiction. What better than to tune in to listen to a couple of self-admitted history and horror nerds intent on dissecting the facts and fiction behind popular horror tropes. Find the Lunatics Radio Hour available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll see you there. Good night.